Hi, everyone. Quick plug before we get started. As many of you probably already know who listen to this podcast, we've launched an app. It's called Vivio. It tracks your sleep, nutrition, exercise, and mindset and gives you individualized recommendations on a daily basis on how to get healthier, to improve your well-being, and to perform to your potentials. If you want to check it out, visit vivio.com, V-I-I-V-I-O.com. Thanks so much. Let's dive into this episode. Welcome back. Great to be with you. Thanks for joining me for another episode of the podcast. Super psyched to share a chat that I had all around training and specifically high intensity interval training with Paul Larson. Paul, I have gotten to know over the last few months, uh, although I've been following his work online for years and just super psyched to share this chat with you. Let me tell you a little bit more about Paul. He is an author, endurance coach, high-performance consultant, and entrepreneur. He was formerly the physiology manager for High Performance Sport New Zealand, where he worked extensively with New Zealand triathlon for quite a period of time through a couple of Olympic cycles. He retained his role as adjunct professor of exercise physiology at the Auckland University of Technology. And the purpose of the role was to reside at the nexus between theory, research, and application of sports science and physiology in high-performance sport. He's got a broad range of research interests that include high-intensity interval training, heart rate variability, which is why I was originally following and tracking Paul's work, so I'm super fascinated about heart rate variability right now. Paul's also studied thermoregulation, uh, health and artificial intelligence as it applies to training, which we're also doing recently. So lots of overlap there. He's published over 125 refereed manuscripts in high impact exercise and sports science journals, which is like a crazy number um, with his work having been cited over 8,000 times. He's also completed 17 Ironman triathlon races and continues to train and prepare for future events, except that he crashed his mountain bike on the weekend He is totally fine, but currently extraordinarily injured. So Paul, we wish you a rapid return to training and health. Uh, Really excited to have this chat. If you want to learn more about Paul online, you can check out the Hit Science website, which is hiitscience.com. And his personal blog website is plusandprof.com, P-L-E-W-S-A-N-D-P-R-O-F.com. So without any further delays, please enjoy this conversation with my friend and high-intensity interval training expert, Paul Larson. Paul, thanks for joining us. Hey, thanks for having me on, Greg. Uh, Super happy that we were able to connect as I'm hiding out here in the mountains from COVID, discovered that uh, our daughters had become friends at ski school, which is super cool. And uh, Ingrid came home one day and said, hey, dad, I think... I think Kaya's dad does the same job that you do, which I thought was pretty cool because I'm actually not even sure what my job is. So the fact that they were able to figure that out together and yeah. run off and, and make that connection was pretty cool. So anyway, super happy to have you here to, on the show. Thanks, man. Yeah, like, likewise, great to be here. Yeah, fellow, still, fellow person that doesn't really know what they're doing, but yeah. <laughs> That's right. We're still figuring that out someday. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So <laughs> let's go back to the origin story. How did you get involved in physiology? 
let, let's go back to the beginning and just learn a little bit more about your background for everyone listening. Sure, sure. So yeah, grew up in New Westminster, mm-hmm. New Westminster BC, a uh, little suburb of Vancouver, and I was just always mesmerized and taken by athletics and sport uh, in general as a youth. My dad quit quit smoking when I was ten, and in uh, replace of smoking, he basically started marathon running, and that wow. was the new addiction that he replaced. And I followed him around, so became a, a decent runner at a young age. Progressed to triathlon in my um, late teens, early twenties. Tried to be, you know, I had the it was you know end of the eighties, early nineties when triathlon was on the on the you know target to potentially be an Olympic event, and I thought, oh, that's what I'm going to try and do. So beat my head against the wall for you know, a good five years, you know, trying to pursue that dream. And then that didn't, uh, didn't manifest. So what do, you, what do you do when you don't become a pro athlete? You, you go to sports sciences, right? So that's what I studied at, uh, at university, uh, bachelor's master's in, um, in, physio- in physiology uh, at UBC. And then went to, got a PhD scholarship to Australia and uh, at uh, University of Queensland and did that for three years, specifically on the topic of high-intensity interval training. That was my PhD, and that kind of ended in uh, 2000. And then I stayed down under for eight years and was a prof down there doing a lot of research. And that I also did a lot of work with David Martin at the Australian Institute of Sport. And then that work kind of caught the interest of the New Zealand government, who was trying to build a high-performance program for their Olympic programs. And I did two Olympic cycles as their lead physiologist from, I guess, uh, yeah, both London and Rio Games. And then through all of that, married a gal from where we are now in Revelstoke. And hence, uh, it was at the end of Rio cycle, she's like, time to, time to go home and, you know, be with family and stuff. So this is, this is kind of where, this is where we are now, this is where we've landed. And I'm just trying to do it all in the online world, basically from, from here in Revelstoke, where I, I kind of do this, uh, like, like you, a bit of, bit of a, you know, this hybrid kind of role of online learning and teaching. And then I, I coach athletes as well, uh, online. And, um, that's in just sort of, yeah, I just have that whole health and wellness and, uh, teaching coaching kind of skill set, I guess. Yeah, that's awesome. That must've been quite a journey through, you know, up as an athlete, and then learning all the science, but then, you know, being thrown right into it in New Zealand and basically running New Zealand triathlon from a sports science perspective, you know, through two Olympic cycles. What'd you learn when you were in New Zealand? Like, what are the key things you think you can take away from that that might be helpful for people? Well, I think I really learned about two worlds. I always call it two worlds. And there's this, I think there's, um, there's a world where we've got the athletes and the coaches. And then there's this other world where we've got the academics and the you know and the sports science and I've sort of had a foot in both camps I guess as you mentioned starting as an athlete then you know not really figuring things out then trying to go down the journey of sports science to learn more about it then coming back out and thinking that I knew it all because I was an academic and I'd be able to apply all my my tricks of uh, of learning and then when I got into the actual world of high performance I found that uh, I needed a whole other different kind of skill set around appreciating context. So I, I learned, I think, that <clears throat> both camps have their really important roles, but they need to learn to communicate and talk together in order for, I believe, really good things to kind of manifest. So. I think I've probably told this story before on this podcast, so I'm boring people by telling it again. But I do remember when I started working with Canoe Kayak, 
and I went down to Florida. I remember sitting on the dock for like three weeks before anyone would actually even speak to me. I was like just hanging out. I tried not to say anything. Um, I asked tons of questions. No one asked me for my opinion on anything. And I was like, okay, so I'm just hanging out here. And then mm-hmm. three weeks, might have been longer, might have been six weeks in, uh, someone finally asked me a question. I was like, okay, here we go. Now we can actually get to work because you can't just take academically discovered principles from research and walk into an applied scenario and just throw them out there and expect it to work. You have to yeah. take it and integrate it. And that and that's the art and science, I guess, of coaching, which kind of mirrors maybe how so many people feel right now with the basically unlimited access to information on the web, yet you've got to integrate that into your own daily practice, it's sort of maybe the same thing. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It sounds like you've had a really similar journey. And yeah, like you, you, I guess, you know, you came in from that academic standpoint, no one really wanted to talk to you initially. And uh, you're sitting with all that info. But I guess you're probably like me, you would have just been in that observation kind of role for a while. And you, you, you have to go through those, those moments of just not feeling like you're being useful, I guess, for a while. But, yeah. you're, you know, you're processing and you're taking things in and you're waiting for your opportunity and you got to be patient. And then and you also have to learn, too, because, it's, I, again, this was my, my key point was that we don't know it all. And there's a lot. There's so many things where, you know, our, our understanding of certain principles. Well, they're great, great to know those principles, but they just don't ap- apply in this situation. Right. So don't bother me with them. Right. So you got to <laughs> really appreciate context so much. Yeah. And the idea of being like, you just got to wait, wait for your moment, right? Like, don't bother me in this situation. Okay, that's cool. We'll wait. When you're ready, we'll, we'll talk about that and being patient, yeah. right? It's about them, not about you, which is, which is also difficult to wrap your head around. But I want to dig into HIT training because that's your, one of the areas that you specialize in. I've been exploring it and experimenting with it. I don't feel like I know it well enough at all. So I'm super psyched to be able to pick your brain about it. But let's just start with the basics. What is HIT training? Why is it different? Let's just put, you know, put the framework around what we're going to talk about. Sure, sure. Yeah, so let's define it first and foremost. And uh, so HIT training, because remember, like, you know, when we just look at, look on the web, we think of HIT training, and we put in a Google search on it, and you're going to get so many different photos and things about it and people in the gym and dancing and, and these sorts of things, right? Like, so who knows what is it really? But we go back... So again, credit to my colleague, Martin Bichette, who has helped me write the book, Science and Application of High-Intensity Interval Training. And nice. By human, human Kinetics, yeah. And then oh, and it's, um, yeah, it's a, it's a really thick, so it's all textbook in it. But we really have to kind of go back to the, to the origins of it. And it's really exercise or sustained exercise, or at least, you know, at least a period of sustained exercise above your so-called anaerobic threshold or your critical power, critical speed. It's got, by, by definition, it has to be above that, that break point where we've got that you know, slow, slow component VO2 thing happening. And it's unsustainable ultimately in, in terms of that exercise intensity. Then um, the other key, key aspect of it is that it's gotta be separated by periods of rest or, mm-hmm. or recovery periods below that mark. So, um, and by doing, I guess, exercise in this broken sort of hit format, we can wind up doing more work above and and in those high exercise intensity bandwidths compared to if we were just going to do one of those, um, you know, sustainably. So we can, we can perform a lot more high intensity work. And then the 
eventual outcome is that we get better adaptations in that high intensity um, intensity bracket. So that's the that's the definition. And there's probably two should probably continue on that thought train. There's two key elements that you are taxing in hit training that are a little different than what you get if you were going to do anything sort of sustained or um, you know submaximal work. And one of those is that you are you know it's the size principle. So motor motor unit recruitment, you're getting into the larger fast twitch muscle fibers with the hit training. You're recruiting those. So that's at the muscular and neuromuscular level. And then you're also, you're also getting some cardiac output um, adaptations, stroke volume adaptations that you wouldn't otherwise get if you were going to do the sort of the submaximal um, aspect. So you're, you're really getting into that, you know, that time at VO2 max typically. And this is, you know, you're under high ventricular stretching and, and yeah, the result in adaptations accordingly. More, a little bit more bang for a buck when done correctly. It's got that folds too. Yeah. So when it comes to when done correctly, let's just walk people through some examples of the intensity and rest breakdown, just so they can really visualize and understand what we're talking about, like alternating, working really, really hard with recovery and regeneration, breaking that up instead of just going and doing, you know, going for a run, for example. Right. And, uh, mm-hmm. and if we understand it better, then we can dive into the adaptations, but yeah, I'd love to know more about doing it correctly. Well, yes, and <laughs> that's a long that's a long one, and we have a whole book and course on that. But, yeah. but it's you know, and and that's like where we start with that is that there's um, my PhD supervisor Dave Jenkins first taught me this expression, and he said uh, he said there's all you know Paul with with exercise training there's there's more than one way to skin a cat, and he's he's so right with that. Um, it's an old English English term and whatnot, but yeah, there's just so many different ways we can kind of go at it. Right. And you even mentioned going for a run. Well, you can do a run in fartlek style too, right? Where it's just you can go and that and that's that's great. That's kind of one of that's the, the Swedes sort of started that. I think it was in the 40s or the 50s. And it was it was very effective kind of training too. Just kind of you're going by going by feel. And I to, to be honest, I there's a lot of a lot of my training, I'll I'll do that too. So I'll still use fartlek training today where I'm uh, I'm just kind of going high intensity, low intensity by feel. Um, because the brain mind often knows best, but yeah, where do you, where do you start? Well, this is what we're, this is where we always start is that it's context before content. So I think that's really important. We, we started the the discussion with this first too, right? So what are you trying to achieve first and foremost? The context should always be in front of the content. So what are we trying to, what are we trying to get at with our hit training? Are we trying to be you know, uh, a speed and power athlete where then we, we, you know, we really want to be utilizing the neuromuscular system and the anaerobic lactic system and maximizing those and, um, and targeting, you know, our approach with that type of training first and foremost, or are we at the other end of the spectrum? We're a little bit more, um, you know, endurance based and we want a little bit more time at VO2 max, you know, so here's where we're going to be using long intervals and, and short intervals but with more of a you know heavy breathing kind of uh, emphasis, which wouldn't be as much so in the in the former example, you know. And then the final the final um, weapon, I guess, that we would we could throw in there too that we talk about in hit science is the game based one too, right? So if you're in the team sport com- context, well, then you're going to be adding you know a ball implement into all of these, and you can form hit training with uh, you know with a ball or, a, or some sort of sport implement in there, tennis, racket sports, it, it can all be applied. 
So, yeah. And, and again, I'm sorry to keep going back to no. the cell in the book, right? But <laughs> but this is why. So it's like within Hit Science and book and course, we we do. So Martin and I do the first ten chapters in it, with his, which is just outlining all of this science. But we're so fortunate. We've got like twenty contributors that come in and they talk about how they apply Hit in their sporting context. So twenty different sports, because, and they're wow. all different. so yeah, really, you know. More, horses for courses lots of ways to skin the cat and and you should be only you should be skinning your cat in accordance with what you need to you're, you're going to try and achieve in your own sport i'm intrigued by the statement the brain knows best and mm. doing high and low intensity by feel mm. and i've become super interested in neurophysiology recently and obviously there's been a lot of writing about what's this known as a central governor maybe the brain controls output by to keep you protected so I'd love your thoughts on that and just, uh, you know, maybe putting away the watch and not, you know, take off the heart rate monitor and change your speed. Because I think a lot of people stay within their comfort zone and it's different for people to go really, really hard and then really, really easy rather than just going out there and being at like 65% where it's nice and comfortable. You're still getting a workout, but you never really breathe that hard. You never really out of breath. Your legs don't really burn that much. So why, you know, I'm just curious about brain knows best. I would love your thoughts on that just because it's an intriguing uh, turn of words that I think would be fascinating for people to understand a little bit better. So as I mentioned, I'm, I'm a, an endurance coach as well, specifically in the sport of triathlon as my forte. That is one of the key things that I try to teach my athletes. I'll, you know, we'll go out and we'll have certain, you know, prescriptions on the plan but I always, I always emphasize to the athlete, you know, whatever that session would be, whether it's a short interval, whether it's a long interval, whether it's a threshold interval, you know, I really, the brain does know best. And I, I want you to feel that, um, that intensity that you're out, out, out there doing, right? So a lot of, you know, we can classify these intensities into different zones right and the the athlete can become very familiar with the zones that they're that they're after so five zone model seven zone model whatever you work with they're all they're all useful and there's different physiological landmarks we can throw around those ones but we try to teach the athlete you know where that where that is after and after a few sessions they should kind of get it you know where they can actually be watching the watch but, but uh, you know, eventually it should almost transition away from the watch where they should just be able to go out and after they're taught, they shouldn't be able to, they shouldn't need to look at the watch anymore. They should know their target times and paces by feel using their own central governor. And on a bad day when there's other negative afferents that are coming into the system and they, they're not going to feel very good, bad sleep the night before, feeling a little possibly, you know, there's an illness that's coming on emotional challenges at home, whatever it may be, then, you know, the central governor may say that we're a little bit taxed and we're just going to come off a bit. And that's okay. It's still, that's the best feel for that day. But alternatively on the, on the day where we're sleeping very well and we're, we feel, you know, happy and energized in life and um, feeling the energy of the environment that's around us, Freaking hell, man! You just get into that, get into that workout, and you own that zone four, zone five, or zone six, or zone seven, whatever it may be. But that's yeah, I'm just all over that. It's just I'm I'm fully believing in that. But it's it's so it's a little bit guide yourself first into and know those zones, and then let it 
just let it be. It doesn't have to be perfectly in that. It can just be, should just be around that zone. What are some of the adaptations that happen when you start to build that into your exercise plan, your training program? So you start to go there, you go into say zone four or five, which for anyone who's not familiar with these zones means they're basically breathing so hard. You can't have a conversation with people. You like yeah. are burning like crazy. I'm curious about what adaptations happen. I'm, I'm curious about like, how do our nerves change? How does the heart change? How do your muscles change? Like why, basically why would we go there? What are the benefits to us by doing that sort of work? Yeah. So typically around the, again, this is so when we cross it zone four, if you're working on a zone four to seven model, typically zone four is locked in at that threshold. So anything in like a, yeah. So any hit exercises, we're typically going above zone four now. And by definition must be now recruiting, I guess, some larger fast twitch muscle fibers that don't typically get taxed in your day-to-day -day kind of interactions. You're never gonna be taxing those when you're walking around. Now all of a sudden you're recruiting those and you're actually making those a little bit more oxidative. So you're um, the same classic triggers of um, you know, signaling are going on, right? Where it's um, PGC1 alpha, causes more mitochondrial density mitochondria and, and basically the when you recover those larger fibers are now going to be becoming they're going to be building up more mitochondria in them which are more um yeah more oxidative they're more fatigue resistance there's going to be more buffering of any of the hydrogen ions that are you know in around there and ultimately it's what's responsible for the next time when you go out and you're feeling good and you're in the same heart rate zone, but yet your, your speed or power may be a little bit higher in that one. So that's at the cellular muscular level, that's kind of one of the key ones that's going on that's of, of importance. And that, that's right across the, the spectrum, even the largest fast twitch muscle fibers. If you're repeatedly hitting those ones, you're making them more oxidative. And then from the cardiovascular standpoint, you know, I think we, 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 we mentioned this one a little bit, but basically there's a, you know, your heart has to work really hard and uh, the kickback is, you know, so there's some, there's some plasma volume increases that, that happen due to the kidneys and you get more water in your um, cardiovascular component, more plasma volume, plus the stretching that's, that's, uh, that's occurring as well. Overall, after adaptations, we get this larger plasma volume, larger central blood volume, and stroke volume is then larger. Cardiac output is then larger, even at the same heart rate, and we get some uh, more adaptations there. So all in all, when you got both peripheral and central adaptations going on, lo and behold, VO2 max increases, right? So maximal oxygen uptake, and we, this is, again, a key marker of health and, and performance. You know, there's a million other adaptations that are going on, but these are kind of some of the some of the key ones. Hip training is uncomfortable. <laughs> Let's just say that. Yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, negative afferents, so that's feedback from the body telling you that it's uncomfortable. So that could be like lactic acid. A lot of people are probably familiar with that one. Um, acid, potassium that builds up in your muscles. It makes it makes you feel like your muscles are burning. You hyperventilate because of all the carbon dioxide that's being produced. How do you recover both in the short term and the long term from these types of workouts? Because they take a they take a toll. Um, mm -hmm. You know, if you go out for a long walk, you don't really need to probably worry specifically about how do I recover from that type of workout. But super curious about your ideas on recovery from hit training to speed us to the next workout feeling really really good. 
Okay, so what, let's let's take both the acute and the longer term chronic. I don't know if it's chronic, but a little, little bit longer term. So start start just in the session itself. So imagine you're doing a hit session. Now context first, as we mentioned, but generally speaking, with most hit sessions, you're looking for you know you're looking to get a good bang for buck out of that session. So you want to you know uh, we want to be able to to go you know get into those larger uh, fast twitch muscle fiber units, which basically means you're you're getting a better quality set in, right? You're doing more work at that high intensity range. So to facilitate that, in the past, we've coaches have often said, oh, you've got to do active recovery to flush out that lactate. And I used to think that myself, but lo and behold, when you actually get into the research, it's actually winds up better if being better if you do passive recovery. You know, DuPont and colleagues showed this in, in 2004. They did this great study, basically, the 15 on, 15 off in the short interval one. They just got their athletes to run into exhaustion. And when they did active recovery at, you know, your standard 60% VO2 max um, versus completely passive, they basically went two times as long in the passive condition when you're fully rested in those 15 seconds when you're doing hit. The reason being is that you're not you know, you're not, it's not as energetically demanding. Um, so you wind up all that energy is, it winds up actually being, you know, able to be um, delivered into the high intensity session and specifically the aerobic energy due to this special little um, protein called myoglobin that sits mm -hmm. inside the muscle cells. So it's like the hemoglobin of the, of the blood is the myoglobin. And the myoglobin um, is this guy that it just quickly resaturates. So if you take a break, its its job is to fully grab all of the oxygen that's sitting in the bloodstream. And so yeah, that's when when you do if you're doing active recovery, well, you're not really allowing that myoglobin to replete and get and grab more oxygen in the muscle cell itself. But if you're going passive, if you're just kind of walking or just gently spinning the legs in the cycling context. Well, more oxygen comes onto that. And the next interval is just going to be more, it's going to have more aerobic resource on board. Um, less lactic acid is going to be uh, produced and you wind up, you, know, you wind up being able to do way more work. So that's the, that's the trick. So basically the, the practical message, if you're doing hit, do passive recovery between the sessions. Generally, the only different contexts where that doesn't apply typically at least that we can think is in the team sport context when practitioners they've only got their athletes for very short periods of time when their their coach gives it to to the conditioner and sometimes they need they want that aerobic response well in that context you would probably have you know active recovery in between so you're getting a real aerobic response in the hip workout so and then you mentioned longer term so i'm trying to think of um you know, give me, you know, what's, what's an example, Greg, that you're, that you're, let's say you go and you do spin class and you absolutely crush it. <laughs> you feel yeah. like you're puking over your bike Yeah. and you're like, oh my gosh, okay. I come home and I'm shattered. How do I get better by the next day or like the yeah. day after that? Like just what are we doing at home to try to recover from these types of workouts? Yeah, I think most of the stuff that your, your listeners from you probably are, are, you know, or, you know, they, they know lots about and things like really trying to maximize your sleep and, improving your hydration and, and make sure your, you know, your nutrition is adequate, um, meditation. So all these sorts of things. So we're trying to be calm in that next period. And then the other thing is, are you, you know, if you've got another hit session, um, program the next day, is that really wise? Because mm -hmm. maybe you're still sort of sitting up there, you know, in terms of your, 
uh, you know, your levels of catecholamine and cortisol, maybe they're still roofed. <laughs> and we want to go through these periods of stress and, and recovery. So, um, you know, there's lots of things we should, we can monitor to check that like heart rate variability and just, you know, back to the central governor fatigue. Am I really, am I really, you know, feeling alive and ready to, to hit it again? Um, so those, those sorts of things, um, and, you know, low intensity exercise too, right? Like, so just going, going for a light spin, um, or light, a light jog or light run walking, uh, walking in the forest, as you know, is excellent. Yeah. <laughs> I'm learning. I'm learning that one. I'm learning that one. Um, you mentioned nutrition. So let's dive into nutrition a little bit, because I think that the approach, there's been so much discussion in the last few years about low carb, high carb, high fat, mm. low fat. And there's probably a lot of people who have heard many things. Maybe they're a little bit confused. So let's dig into that as well. And your and your approach to nutrition, which is, uh, which is, I think, pretty awesome. So I'd love to hear about how you approach nutrition for your athletes. Sure. It's, a prick, it's always a prickly topic, eh? Um, for, for whatever reason, re, um, nutrition almost seems to be a little bit of a uh, bit of religion, but I'll give you my religion. And that's... <laughs> I think it's because it's personal, right? Like the way that you eat is yeah. personal. So it's like, yeah. it, it's not like how you sleep. For some reason, when you talk about sleep, no one takes offense to it. Yeah. When you talk about nutrition, everyone's like, ah, like that. I like carbs or I like you know, whatever. So yeah. anyway, we'll just learn and people can pick and choose what they want to take yeah. away from it. But yeah, I, no, it is very it. personal. It is. It is. And I, I actually think that's the probably, you know, to put everyone on the same page, that is everyone is an individual and you need to figure out what works for you. And that's um, I've got this other website that used to work with my mate, Dan Plews. It's called Plews and Prof. And we, did, we did a blog on that. Um, and I, I talked about some of my experiences helping athletes with the whole low carb approach and um uh, yeah, it's uh, I had an absolute failure. So I'll tell you about the, the approach I take. I basically take um, it's almost kind of a because again, context for first and foremost, these are Ironman triathlete that I'm typically um, working with, and typically they want performance for a four to to, to eight hour event. Most people can underappreciate can appreciate the fact that if you have a sustainable energy source that's almost unlimited which is our, you know, our fat metabolism. It's pretty handy to have that one ramped right up. So that's kind of the, the general approach that I do. So it's, and I, it's, it's like a well-formulated ketogenic diet. So, uh, you know, Jeff Volick, uh, Tim Noakes, uh, Steve Finney, you know, it's, and really we try to be a, a real Nutribor in this, making sure that we have all of the, the nutrients on board that we need. And yeah, but it's, it's a, a whole food, low carbohydrate and uh, high fat, relatively high protein diet, all whole foods is generally what we recommend. If it, it's, um, and it's difficult to find literature, uh, a lot of literature that supports it. Probably the fact that um, the, it hasn't had as much industry support as other means. And that's what I've discovered in my, through my history, that, that journey. Uh, so yeah, like it's, you know, Tim Noakes, if anyone's interested in trying it, basically I would, it is like Tim Noakes has a real meal revolution, I guess, format and, uh, yeah, eat mostly from the, his, his green list and about 80% from his green list. And obviously 
I was at your daughter's birthday party. I had a had a couple little sweet items as well, Greg. So it's yeah. like you know, there's the, and the whole 80-20 rule and this. You gotta kinda let things go, I, I find yeah. as well. But but generally that that works really well for for my athletes. I've taken a lot this is what a lot of people kind of come to me with in the Ironman context. They come to me with this issue where they're having gut issues, probably the fact they're on too many too many carbs and too many sugar gels during the race and they can't figure it out. I'm doing everything that the, you know, the sports nutritionists say I should do, but I'm always, I'm having these gut issues. So why is that? Anyways, often when they switch to this diet, they reduce the amount of uh, onboard nutrition they, they need during the race, say from 90 grams per hour to down to 50 grams per hour because fat metabolism is heightened. That takes burden off the gut and they're they all of a sudden they're able to race do those hit workouts and and uh, race performances without gut distress and it just makes it makes all the difference because a lot of the times they're dropping out of these races because of their their bloating and their their tummy troubles yeah and it's not the it's it's as i mentioned individual um this doesn't work for all so you know, and again, go to go to the blog post. You can read about an athlete that it just did not work for. He's a vegetarian athlete. I'm not sure if that mattered. Did not uh, did not work for him. So it's about finding what does work for you. If, but if this is um, yeah, in certain contexts, it can be it can be very good. Yeah. I'm really interested in the term nutrivore. I've actually never heard that term before. I love it because I talk all the time about high, you know, increasing your nutrients as much as possible while optimizing your calories, right? Each yeah. H equals N over C health is equal to nutrients over calories, but I never thought of it in terms of like being a nutrivore. Can you like, let's dig into that because I think that's a super interesting idea for people. Yeah, I got it. Um, I got it from Rob, uh, Rob Wolf. I read his book, um, Sacred Cow. And basically he, that's, uh, he argues in the book for like a sustainable, you know, organic, uh, meat. And he basically, you know, cause the cow gets a bad, gets a bad name, you know, worldwide and you know, with the global warming and all those sorts of things. But yeah, he just describes it really well with let's just be a nutrivore, break down exactly all of the, uh, the nutrients that we need from all of them, all of the micronutrients, vitamins, minerals, uh, you know, and, and when you, when you do it, well, low, you know, you like, this is a cool, kind of a cool way to get out of the whole religion thing that we started with. Let's just be scientists. How can I get the most nutrients that I need, right? B12, riboflavin, blah, 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 all these different nutrients. If I need that, how do I get it? And then that's like, this is going to be the, the largest dose by doing X, Y, Z, and it winds up coming out the, like all of the meat products are just, they're sky high. Um, and they get a bad name for whatever reason, but, um, they're the ones where you're getting the most nutrients, uh, terms of the, terms of the micros and the minerals. So that's, yeah, that's, um, that's one of the key philosophies that I, that I sort of try to follow, you know, and it fits well with the science approach that we both try to take. So. Yeah. And how do we navigate the whole, whole, whole food versus processed food thing? What are you seeing there? Like, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, this was a, in, again, going back to, to Rob's book. Uh, I remember it, it's very, it's kind of difficult to find a good uh, set of research studies that are able to distinctly sort of show that there's anything that much different between, uh, you know, a free ranged uh, piece of meat and one that's, and one that's not, 
one that's uh, you know grown in the not not so not so good sort of situations or organically versus not. Um, at least you know I'm not kind of aware, but um, I think we need to look at some of the other stuff that's going on with the pesticides and whatnot that you might be getting. I think it's this is where the whole science and art kind of come into into play. So it's in common sense. So for me, like personally, I'm I'm always recommending to try to try to purchase the best, the most, the thing that you can afford. Uh, yeah. If you can afford like uh, if you can afford the free range, if you can afford the organic, it does make a lot of common sense, I believe, to um, try to go for that. But, uh, uh, yeah, no, as organic something. as you can afford is what I've been trying to to say recently. Yeah. And I think you're right. Like, I think there's a lot of research. There's been a, a number of research studies that have shown there's not that much of a difference when it comes to protein, fat, carbs between, let's say, organic, free range versus industrial agriculture. But when you start to dig into vitamins, minerals, and especially pesticides, there differences begin to emerge that are often glossed over, but I think are important for people that want to be healthy and to perform to their best. But again, against the backdrop of what can you, don't blow your budget. And I do remember a couple of years ago when Judith and I were trying to make this all work, we're like, what if we got rid of cable? <laughs> so we, we, cut, we cut cable, which gave us like two or 300 bucks a month back because we weren't, weren't even watching TV anymore. We just allocated that to our, our food budget and that's how, how we made it work. But uh, yeah, anyway, that's right. So, I'm also curious from your perspective about just integrating how, what have you seen for athletes or for, for people who are training who successfully integrate training into life? And earlier we talked a little bit about, um, you know, sleep and nutrition and illness, but also sort of emotional, like we, in order to do this, in order to train and be healthy, there's a lot of life that needs to get managed. Have you ever, have you seen anything just in terms of successful athletes or people that you've worked with that have managed work, family, training like how do we put it all how do we put all of this together yes uh time management is the sh is the sort of short short answer and priorities so and this is where you know so there's certain a type uh personalities that they just thrive on the clock and, and a routine and if they know their training is on x day at x time and it's just like any other it's like going to work it's like the podcast that we sh both showed up for right yeah so it's like, no, I'm going to, I've got my two hour block of training window that's scheduled right there and it's scheduled there and I will not miss that. And that's the way it's going to kind of go. So this is where planning kind of comes in. So if you plan it appropriately and then you can, you can achieve what you want to achieve. It's, it's really, a, it's a choice. Yeah, I think that that's what gets your um, your calendar betrays your priorities, right? So what gets scheduled gets completed. And I think we often schedule so many things with regards to work. We'll schedule making sure we get our kids to their practices on time. We just think that somehow magically our workouts are going to materialize in our schedule without being planned and organized and, and, and your time defended to do them. So that's a... I love that very simple response, basically time and planning and make it a priority and make sure it gets into your calendar and then defend that time. It's awesome. Final thoughts from you. I just wondering about your app. Tell us about your app and what you're doing around that. Cause that's also pretty interesting from my Thanks. perspective, also trying to create an app. So yeah, I'd love to know what you're up to on that front. 
Yeah, well, it's a it's a good segue for it because it's that's where the planning kind of comes into it. So it's a it's basically a planning tool for your training, and it integrates everything that we're just talking about with Hit Science. So it's say you want to do a triathlon or a marathon or a you know a, a Grand Fondo cycle race, and you want to know how to do that. Well, basically, you know, it's a it's an app. It's called Athletica, and you can just click on the date of that race and voila here's your plan and then you can you know um you can move i guess sessions around in accordance with your schedule and your calendar and your context but irrespective of how you build that you know build that out the logic in the program goes back and still optimize the i guess it does the best it can for your context so it uses mathematics to still give you the best session on that day which has always been, you know, this is where this whole thing sort of started when I was the frust- frustrated triathlete and I couldn't figure out how to, uh, how to get my performance to the level that I wanted to. That's always been my, my goal. So this is athletic is, is the realization of uh, a tool that helps you get to the goal that you're after. So, you know, it's yeah, mostly built for the endurance context, but that, that's kind of what it does. Uh, what are you excited about these days? Like, what's got your attention? What are you learning about? Like, what's fascinating for you? Uh, like, what's capturing your attention these days? <laughs> probably, probably back to that. Trying to make the app go in the context yeah. of the Corona, uh, you know, lockdowns and whatnot. So, what? Yeah, how do you how do you make that go when the the situation is it's uh, you know there's no races. So, uh, but hopefully that's maybe going to change in the future. Hopefully things are things are picking up, but, um, yeah, that's, I guess what I'm thinking about, thinking about a lot, uh, thinking about, you know, subsequent, uh, versions of the book and, um, what I need to add on there and you know, working with my athletes and, and, uh, you know, with trying to help them realize their dreams. Those what effect do you think the lack of races has had? Do you think that's helped people or is it hindered people or is it sort of like back and forth? Cause I actually feel like I'm training better now with no races on the calendar than I was before with a race on the calendar. Don't know why that is, but would love your perspective on that. Yeah, I would agree. That's the, so for a lot of us, the, the reason, so you can be like, this is, um, so if you're in your home environment and you're getting that regular circadian rhythm and, and regular sleep, which this is kind of forced on us where we're not having to you know travel to various different things or be as busy and uh, you you are yeah it's basically more time to training and recovery, and I think that's facilitated a improved fitness in a lot of us and, and health. But I'm you know I think it's gone the other way, and I think a lot of us are itching for a race yeah. down the down the track so we can you know or a few more races. They are there are a few out there, but uh, yeah we we want a lot more, and I'm hoping hoping that things are going to open up around the world uh, shortly. At least, and on my athletes are the same. Uh, yeah, I think that for the first little while, definitely it was fun not to have to worry about a specific date. But now I'm like, okay, I'm ready to let's put something on the calendar. So <laughs> everyone's feeling that way as well. Yeah. So, yeah. Paul, if people want to learn more about you and what you're up to. Where can they find you online? Yeah, so, uh, so I've got a website, paullarson.com, and my key projects there that I spoke about on this, on the podcast. So both hit science and athletica are, are on there and uh, yeah, come check it out. 
Super cool. Thanks for taking the time. I know how busy you are. I really appreciate it. And uh, I'm going to get out there and do a few more interval training sessions than I probably would have done otherwise after this chat. So really appreciate you taking the time to hang out with us. Thanks for having me on, Greg. All right, everyone. Hope you enjoyed that conversation. Lots to dig into there. Uh, pretty deep dive into training physiology, but that's where this all began. So super psyched to dig into it again. And hopefully that just gave you a few ideas about how you can train more effectively. Paul, if you're listening, hope you're feeling better, buddy. I know that was a big crash last week. So appreciate you being out there pushing the limits, but also hoping that you are back and healthy as soon as possible. If anyone listening wants to follow Paul, check him out on social, just search Paul Larson, and you will find his work at plus and prof, P-L-E-W-S-A-N-D-P-R-O-F.com. If you want to share this episode in your communities, that would be amazing. If you can subscribe and wherever you get your podcast, that would also help us tremendously. And if you can give us a review on iTunes for a few minutes, that would be also incredibly helpful as well on the podcast app. If you're on that platform, that's it for this week, everyone. Thank you so much for joining in and listening. Really appreciate it. Hope you are all healthy and well and out there and enjoying summer in the Northern hemisphere and staying active if you're in the Southern Hemisphere. Take care, everyone. Talk to you again soon.